0: Sachi unsheathed his weapon a few centimeters. A long, thick hunting knife with serrated edges caught the light. He blinked a few times, then quickly sheathed it again.
1: Welcome to the Sparkler Monthly Podcast, Episode 11, Working in the Manga Industry. Uh, my name is Lance Centaur, I'm the head of prose and... Uh, other things at sparkler monthly we're gonna go around the circle
2: (laughs) i say like head of pros and then like 90 percent of business operations (laughs) Uh, between you and becca it's like you you guys are the ones who are really taking care of almost everything behind the scenes logistically um but i'm lillian i'm head of comics uh
3: my name's lisa patillo and i'm the head web administrator for sparkler monthly and also i do some print design
1: a lot of print design. (laughs) Everybody at Sparkler has, like, eight jobs, so these are our yeah, primary it's jobs.
3: It's <laughs> nice to sum it up all tidy.
1: Yeah, it's true. <laughs> all three of us have worked for a long time in the manga industry, and one of these questions we get pretty frequently um, besides sort of, like, how will Sparkler hire me <laughs> is uh, sort of what the comic industry is like in general. Um, we at least actually have some in- uh, has some experience with Marvel as well, so we might end up kind of deviating a little bit with uh, where in the industry we work. But all three of us have a lot of years in the manga industry and, um, you know, still a booming business and has been 15, 20 years now. Of course, it has its ups and downs. <laughs> um, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. And there's also kind of a, uh, a unique experience to working in that process that we think is sort of interesting and people might want to know because uh, we obviously take a lot of inspiration from manga and how uh, Japan publishes. So this is kind of where how we decided to structure S- Sparkler and uh why. So who would like to uh start and explain kind of how you got started in the manga street and what your work is now?
3: Um, you guys both have more experience than me, so I will let you both go first because I'm like the baby.
2: I was going to say like, I think you should go first because my story actually relates to you indirect indirectly as we've talked about previously. So I feel like oh, me. you tell your story and then me showing sort of how mine joins with that. I think <laughs>
1: it's interesting. So yeah. Uh, I got hired freelance when I was a teenager. Um, Tokyopop was just starting out and I was a big Sailor Moon fanfic writer and the, uh, these Sailor Moon children's novels were being advertised, I think in either Smile Magazine or Tokyopop Magazine, one of the old magazines that Tokyopop put out. And, uh, I wrote a strongly worded letter to Pop, <laughs> being like, you're gonna mess it up, you should hire a fanfic writer. You know, I tried to have sources, but like, <laughs> my sources were from like a Sailor Moon romance and, you know, it was, it was a different time, anyway, and they basically wrote okay, back. for a sailor Moon romance. <laughs> that was the best. oh thing. Okay, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> this was Sorry. before Fanfic.net, actually. Oh God, yeah, yeah. So this was like ninety-eight, <laughs> right? And um, turned out they were hiring, and uh Sue Levy didn't mind being kind of politely yelled at, and was like, "Oh, do you want to apply this job? This is sort of open." So I did, and then he found out my age, cause that kind of came out in my resume when I was like, oh, I've been to a writing conference. It was sleep away. You know, like, that was sort of <laughs> <laughs> the extent of my professional experience with that. But I'd written, um, I'd written a novel, uh, and self-published it at that point, but you know, it was done on a mom and pop printer or whatever. And then he found out I was 17 and was like, oh, great. It's for teenage girls to tire teenage girl. It'll be fun. And it was fun. Um, they used to ship me around. I went and did. I, at New York. I had to go do a presentation to a boardroom full of book distributors, and they were like, "Why did you bring this kid?" And they really like they all wanted to sit at my lunch table. <laughs> they were like, what, what grade are you in?
2: <laughs> Funny. Oh my god. I've uh, heard that part before.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was fun, and all the schools were parading me around and stuff. So I had sort of a busy senior year. But anyway, from that point on, um, I sort of had my foot in the door, and since I was such a enormous fangirl, I was always trying to get more work from Stu and Tokyo Pop. Shortly after that, they really expanded their manga line and they were looking for rewriters. I also helped them with pitches for a few more novel series based off properties that either didn't really go anywhere or they wanted another writer. But my first manga job was Digimon, which is actually a Chinese manga anyway. It wasn't even uh the Japanese manga. And then it was really terrible. And they said like, well, you know, can you make it a thing? So I added like a million bubbles and boxes and stuff. Because it was really just a companion piece to the anime. It didn't make any sense on its own, really. And I did such an elaborate job. They're like, okay, what more work do you want? And, you know, from then on, just kind of did everything. I worked for, um, a little bit for DMP, uh, Anime Insider Magazine with, uh, that wizard publication, which is no longer around, um, and Seven Seas. Now I work for Seven Seas, which I really like a lot.
2: So let's move into. We'll go to Lillian. So I was a sort of animation and comics fan since I was a kid. Like I really grew up on Secret of NIM and The Last Unicorn and like Tintin and Asterix comics with a little bit of Marvel on the side. And then um but I'd always been interested in Japan and so that kind of came together like in early high school when Sailor Moon was coming out on Cartoon Network. And I just got completely obsessed with it. And so I started picking up, this is this is where the story overlaps, is because I started picking up Smile Magazine, because that was one of the ways you could read the Sailor Moon manga at the time. Um, and this was when there were only, like, I don't know, a season and a half of Sailor Moon out. They, like, they didn't even have, you know, S out yet. Um, and so, like, I wanted to read ahead and find out what was going on with the other senshi. And one of the issues that I picked up actually had an interview with Leanne about the Sailor Moon novels. And I read that as a high schooler and was like, oh, my God, she's my age and she's doing this really cool stuff. And so that's kind of how (laughs) I was like, maybe I could do that, too, someday. Um, And then I didn't really think about it too seriously. Like, I continued being an anime and manga fan and went off to college and, like, ran our anime society. And at the time, I was actually, I don't remember if I put two and two together on this one, but I started reading Sleep is for the Week, which was Leanne's old anime and manga blog that had a lot of reviews and stuff which was hilarious for one thing um and and very informative that guided a lot of my purchases as anime club president um <laughs> and uh when I was getting around to my senior year in in college I was trying to figure out what to do with myself and at that point I was a double major in English and Japanese and I'd done a internship at a publishing company in New York and kind of on a whim um I noticed that Tokyo Pop had a job opening for a junior editor um and was like yeah, why the you know, I might as well. I'll give it a shot. Um I'd met Stu really briefly when I was studying abroad in Japan. He did a presentation at my college. So like I knew that they were, you know, out there and and doing stuff that was kind of cool and exciting in the manga industry. I'd basically like the funny thing about it was that I went to college in the fucking middle of nowhere in western Massachusetts and didn't go into a chain bookstore for like fours. Um <laughs> And so we went from having like two volumes of Sailor Moon on the shelves at Barnes and Noble when I left for college to suddenly four years later having this huge section that was just covered with Tokyo Pop books. This was like the height of Tokyo Pop's kind of success. Um, And yeah, so I so I applied basically on a whim and went out my uh, spring break my senior year in college to interview, and lo and behold, they hired me. Um, And partly because um so i I was notable for sort of two reasons on the tokyo pop staff aside from the fact that i was really young at the time like i got hired when i was 21 and was working by the time i was 22 um and uh i was the first full-time staff member in editorial who could really speak and read japanese we had a couple of copy editors including uh alexi kirsch who's now at uh viz who he's he's a way better japanese speaker than i am but he wasn't full-time staff um, and he was he was sort of in the copy editing department checking translations and stuff, but that was kind of his role. Um, and I was also one of the first people who really was a manga fan from the start. So, again, that was a little different with the copy editors, but from a staff perspective, we had a lot of comics people, but not a lot of necessarily manga people. And particularly because I was a girl. Um, and Tokyo Pop had made its money on Sailor Moon, was continuing to make its money with... Peach Girl and Card Captor Sakura and Mars and and all of these other very girl-oriented titles. Fruits Basket was just starting to come out in the U.S. when I joined. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like my perspective as a fan, um, looking at this material, thinking about is it going to work for somebody like me? I really was our audience, and so my perspective on that was really kind of invaluable to the company. And they they figured that out extremely quickly, <laughs> <laughs> um, which which led me to sort of. It was a combination of like, I, I rose through the ranks both from like attrition of other staff members. Um, Tokyopop was many things. It was great at hiring really awesome people and very bad at keeping them. Yeah. So like the editor, yeah. the turnover rate in the editorial department was extremely high. And so I went from junior editor to senior editor in about three years, basically four years. Um, and, uh, but also because I was providing a skill set that not a lot of people had at the time. They hired me young deliberately because they wanted to train someone how to be a manga editor specifically. So, like, not just a prose editor, not just a comics editor, somebody who could really get manga. So this was also the start of Tokyo Pop doing original content. So they'd run one Rising Stars contest at that point. They were finishing up the second. And then a big part of my job was getting involved with a third and, and onward and starting to kind of develop... Non-Japanese talent, try and get people's stuff out there. So I was sort of fifty percent working on licensed titles, and then fifty percent working with people like Svetlana Shmakova and Joanna Eastep and Jen Lee Quick and Irene Flores to to do also people who are manga fans trying to do things that we were all excited about and build the market in new ways. So which was not successful the way we wanted it to be. Although I'm really proud of the work that we did. Yeah. So yeah. There's that. So, yeah, then uh, in 2011, um, Tokyo Pop basically shut down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was not the last person to get laid off, but I was in the second-to-last batch of people who got laid off. So I was, I was kind of proud of my staying power there. And then since then, I've been doing a variety of freelance stuff. So I've thought about kind of going back full-time to the manga industry, but for various reasons, it doesn't really have a lot of appeal to me, and I really like... <laughs> kind of doing freelance stuff. So I, I do work for Crunchyroll. I do work directly for Kodansha and Kadokawa in kind of different capacities. I do a little bit of work for Viz. Yeah, and it's, it's not the greatest money in the world, but it's a way to kind of keep my hand in the game and keep working on things that I think are fun without some of the craziness that comes along with a full-time job in the anime and manga industry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so my other little funny like side story is that when I was applying for jobs, this is another kind of odd small world thing, similar to Leanne. When I was applying for jobs coming out of college, I also applied for a translation job at ADV. It was like a very low-level job. I really wasn't qualified for it. I'm not a great translator. Um, that's just not the way, kind of, that wasn't the focus of my, my education. Um, so I didn't get that. Like I applied, I did this little translation test and they were like thanks but no thanks and so then i went and got the job at Tokyo Pop fast forward to 11 years later <laughs> i started working on princess jellyfish this past year with uh, a translator who works for used to work for ADV and basically we have the same career path so like she joined in 2004 we're about the same age we both come from like a small liberal arts college background and i'm like i bet that you got the job that i applied for <laughs> back in the day um and now, you know, it's worked out great for both of us, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. And now, 11 years later, we get to work together. And she's really, she's a terrific translator. I really love working with her. So it, it's been this very kind of fruitful relationship that I've gotten a big kick out of. And it's like, that wouldn't have happened if, you know, you hadn't gotten the job and I did or or whatever. Um, and it's kind of fun to compare our experiences of, like, working on the anime side versus working on the manga side because even though you'd think that they'd be really closely related they're very very different industries yeah with very yeah. very different kind of workflows so that's been neat side note yeah. to that
1: um this you're gonna hear a lot of this but um especially in the manga industry it's incredibly incestuous like it's a relatively yeah. small industry um because it has so many ups and downs a lot of the people who are here now are the ones who loved manga so much that they refused to quit, even when like all the jobs were disappearing. Um, so as, right. a re- as a result, it's interesting because we have a lot of extremely experienced people who have been doing manga since, you know, kind of early 2000s, uh, just because they didn't leave. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that job that you got at Toki Pop, I actually applied for that job, and you're the one who got it, and I
2: didn't. And <laughs> right, right, yeah, we've talked about that before, too, yeah. that, like, came in to interview. So, and, like, met Tim Beadle and those folks. So. Yeah, and I was wondering. I was like, I wonder who this girl is. Maybe she'll be my rival, and it'll be like a healthy rivalry. But <laughs> <laughs> and instead, we almost immediately started working together. Because yeah. like, you no, know, I almost immediately took over hands off. So which was yes, my like, favorite manga of all baby. time, well, which you talked about as you know on Sleep is for the week, which is how I knew about it. So yeah, when Nicole was like, I don't know what I wanted. You know, this series isn't really working for me, and I was like, oh oh oh, give it to me, give it to me. <laughs> don't understand that the, for some reason the rewriter on it is insane and keeps like insisting to do all these things.
1: Yeah, there were a yeah. couple um obscure titles where I was like give it to me, no one wanted it. Like why yeah. would anybody read this? Uh, I like really obscure manga. Anyway, Hands Off is now available Viz rescued the license it's on comicsology. Yeah. I highly recommend it. Lisa, yeah. your turn.
3: My story is not as interesting or as experienced. Um, but
1: let's see. Going way back. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, I think you have the biggest skill set out of all three of us, <laughs> Lisa. You can do anything.
3: Okay, we'll start from the very beginning. When I was a toddler, Astro Boy obsession. <laughs> 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 uh, Sailor Moon came out when I was in elementary school. So yeah, you're quite a bit younger school, than we are. My elementary school years were all about you know spinning in skirts and running home to get the TV on at 4:30 when Sailor Moon came on. Um, and then junior high was my Dragon Ball Z phase. Um, three years of Dragon Ball being my life. I've been into, like, animation and comics and manga and anime for my entire life. I first started doing it kind of semi-professionally when I started, uh, writing my blog, uh, which eventually became Curiosity. Uh, I've been doing a lot of writing for years on fan sites, uh, many Dragon Ball Z sites and Sailor Moon sites. Um, and then I started doing more critique work. And I did that for years and, uh, news reporting and things like that. Um, one because I love the material and two because I really got attached to that circle, um, kind of the yeah. blog circle. Yeah the, um, yeah, the bloggers. Uh and I was, you know, when I started writing uh for my own site and getting review copies from companies, which blew my mind. They're like, Hey, you, you want us to send you some books? And I was like, Oh my god, it's like I'm a grown-up because I know I'm like eighteen. <laughs> um so that was a writing machine through college, um, which I went to for animation. And you know, Part of it was writing because I loved writing it, like every time news would come up and get that urge, like, okay, I've got a report on it, that charge. Um, but also just, I, I wanted to be part of that very adult manga critic crowd, the the Debs and the Bridgets and the Ed Sizemores and all these wonderful, awesome, smart people who always like, oh my God, they're talking to me. <laughs> so I just got very enamored with this kind of, um, and then more like an industry world because it was the first time I was really talking to people who were a lot older than me. So I was like, wow, like mm. these professional lives and these things that they do and the way that they write and publish and, and then, you know, interviewing some people, uh, at cons or meeting a lot of the people who work at companies, again, like press or Tokyo Pop or anything at conventions. So I just started getting really attached to it from an industry perspective. And I did a little writing for Ataki USA. Um, I had a column on their website for about a year or so. Uh, I did a little bit of writing for AM News Network. I was one of their review staff for a little while there. Uh and all the while I was doing uh, a lot of freelance work for like graphic design and websites. Uh and then everything kind of started overlapping uh with my love of comics. So most of the web work I was doing was for web comic artists, uh artist portfolios, We're not doing, you know, those other more boring like real estate websites to pay the bills. Uh <laughs> And then my day job for years after I graduated college and decided animation was definitely not for me <laughs> is uh, I stayed in the print industry. So I've always worked like at print press, either as a designer or the designer slash printer. Um, so, again, everything kind of, you know, combined together for with my love of comics and my life needing to revolve around it. Um, so now I, I really wanted to get into the production of comics itself because I was really and still am obsessed with anything on the printed page. Um mm-hmm. and comics. Let's see. I'm like professional work wise, starting with companies, uh was yeah, mostly just being a, a critic. Um I applied to do some it was rewrite work for a company years ago. I'm not gonna say who it was. Um, but they turned me down because they said that as a critic, I was more valuable than working for a company. Oh, wow. Um, and that they couldn't hire me at the time. It could have been a really nice rejection, but it always kind of stuck in my head from that moment on of, is my writing this blog and kind of digging up a bit of dirt? Like, I always thought I was very nice. I didn't, like, you know, digging up dirt about companies. But I did get in a little bit of hot water for some stuff. So I, I started having this fear that writing for my site, like Curiosity Enemies Network, was going to foil my chances of ever actually working for a company to help put manga on the shelves. So there was a little bit of that and then a little bit of, you know, how life gets in the way. I I slowed down my writing, uh, stopped attending as many cons and really focused more on uh just doing website code and stuff. Uh and then eventually I worked for you guys because I loved what you were doing. I knew both your names from uh Sleepers for the Week and for working for Tokyo Pop and the con circuit. And Yay. It- and in a, in a way to try to again, sidle my way up to people I thought were cool, I sent you an email saying, hey, I redesigned this website for you that you did not need or ask for.
1: <laughs> that, yeah, okay. I'm going to elaborate. Like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you, so thank you. our
1: first <laughs> like six months were a complete disaster. Like it was just like a clusterfuck beyond our, our, even our initial assumptions. We're like, okay, things are going to screw up. Whatever. We'll, we'll handle it. It's fine. Um, Things went really, really wrong. And we we had some major website problems, which obviously as a digital publisher is kind of like, hey, your storefront is on fire. Like like it was that kind of problem where it's like we can't do anything until we fix this. And then Lisa <laughs> redesigned, I think it was our corporate website, chromaticpress.com. And she like sent me a screenshot. Yeah. And she's like, so I built this on my computer for you if you guys want like a, a design. <laughs> like you can have it. Uh, here's a picture. Just tell me if you want
2: me to send it. <laughs>
1: What? I I'd, I'd met you at a couple dinners. We used to do the the manga blogger dinners at um, TCAF, which is now blown into a f- a giant sparkler party every year at TCAF. Um, so I knew who you were and I liked you and you know I followed your work and I was like <laughs> Lillian, Becca, look what little Lisa made us. <laughs> so it was kind of like after everything had gone so wrong, having like here is a free website, and that was part of the problem that like our websites were kind of falling apart. Um, that. You know, you were just like a gift from God, just in our lap. We didn't have to do anything. We didn't have to reach out. We didn't have to, we didn't even have to tell people things were going wrong. It was just like, here, I fixed this thing you weren't even talking about. So it was wonderful.
3: <laughs> well, you were using like a basic WordPress theme, like right out of the box. So I didn't think I was stepping on anyone's toes by <laughs> suggesting for that particular site. That's why I didn't do anything for Sparkler, but for Chromatic, it was the default. So I was like, okay, I don't think I'm going to piss off a designer. It doesn't look like they have one.
2: <laughs> yep. Yeah. Accurate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Things had, um, had gone awry in that sense. It was both a, it was a combination of design and structural issues that we had. Cause as anybody knows, the sparkler site is very complicated. And even in the beginning, it wasn't a lot simpler than it is now. And making something that was both structurally what we needed and aesthetically what we needed was, we just weren't getting it. It wasn't happening. We were having problems. Everybody was sort of part-time. So, you know, we didn't have regular hours. So when something needed to be fixed, it could take weeks, stuff like that. So um, at that point, Lisa, I was like, oh my God, I really want to pay you or something. Like, can you come work for us? Uh, like a lot of Sparkler members and like a lot of startups were like, we can give you some stock in the company. <laughs> like We don't have a lot of cash, but like, you know, we have sort of shares that you can work for. And then, you know, eventually we got a little bit of cash. And, um you know, so she she's actually staff now, but she basically became staff by doing staff work and offering it to us before even talking to us, which is not the usual way you get in through a company. But, you know,
3: <laughs> just I that's- feel that's kind of the story for my work life. And a lot of people is. <laughs> I'm doing stuff for free and then kind of hoping the right person gets it. Um Yeah. Which no, is, which is not how I'd recommend getting in, you know, to a lot of things. But, you know, you got to you got to put the legwork in. You can't just walk up to a place. And...
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to let you uh finish in a second, too, because I want you to go into all the crazy manga work you do now. But uh one thing that all three of us have in common, um besides the fact that we did, you know, I don't know how important necessarily a formal education is in this. I think in terms of like editorial and stuff, it's a little more important than if you were like maybe an mm-hmm. artist, which they look a little bit more, what can you do as opposed to where did you go? Because we all did, you know, at least an undergrad on the side while we were doing this, but or before in Lillian's case, we all were very active in, like, fandom spaces. You know, even Lillian, who came in relatively early, she was still, like, running her anime club and, you know, reading everything that was on the shelf. And uh, that blog that I used to work on, Sleep is for the Week, it was always... The reason we started that was after I'd done the Sailor Moon novels and I was still looking for work in the the anime and manga industry, I was like, well, nobody's gonna... I need to prove that I understand manga. Just doing this one-licensed series... I don't have any street cred uh, in terms of like manga. So I did that specifically to build up critique skills and and show that I was well read and that I could, you know, I kind of could break down why I thought manga was good or why it was bad. Um And also, actually, part of the reason I got the Sailor Moon job is because I wrote a lot of fan fiction. That was like one of my main, you know, resume things at that point. So it, it a job is not going to fall into your lap. Um And the few, there have been, you know, all of us have gotten jobs for other people in the industry. We're like, hey, do you want a job in the industry? I think you're really skilled. Like most of those people's because I was reading their work in fandom somewhere. And I was like, oh, my God, you're really good at this. Have you ever thought of going pro or, um, or you know, in Lisa's case, you go and you meet everybody. And then you, you know, work on a lot of little sites, apply to every job that comes up or, you know, offer writing. You kind of have to go out there, especially these days, and make it on your own a little bit to prove that you're self-motivated. Because, again, this industry is all people who like really wanted to be in manga the people who are in manga for the money or for a job they are long gone in manga for the money you'd have to be insane to be in manga
2: for the money yeah well yeah
1: but <laughs> but also just people who are like like for example if lillian if you hadn't been such a big fan but you had applied for that job and you'd gotten it and you weren't like totally invested in manga you would have left a long time ago because yep, it is really,
4: absolutely.
1: it's really difficult here and you have to prove that like you know i want it i want to be here 'Cause there's really no other incentive to be here other than I love manga. Not money, not stability, not uh fame, you know, because even in the manga circles, like small circles online, right?
3: Well even then you also take a lot of shit from Oh yeah, stuff too, which is you gotta
1: be able to power through that. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, when the lame is doing a lot of Tokyo Pop's PR during like, the OEL days. <laughs> like, oh my god.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I was the public face of the company for a while. So like, if you went to a convention that Tokyo Pop was doing a presentation at between probably 2005 and 2008, I'm probably one of the people who was on stage there talking about stuff. So um, just because, for one thing, at the time, I was really heavily involved uh, in our acquisitions department. Um, and so I basically read, man, for the first year that I was at Tokyo Pop, I basically read a volume of manga at lunch every day over my lunch, um, so I had this kind of encyclopedic knowledge of our catalog. And then I was reading a huge portion of what was coming out from Japan as part of our licensing process. And so, yeah, so when we pick up new titles, there would be like me and Alexi and maybe like one other person who would really know what the title was actually about mm-hmm. um and could summarize it in some way. And so, yeah, so when we had people go up on panels and be like, talk about this title for two seconds while we, you know, announce our new licenses, I was the one who would do that because... Mm-hmm. I can speak reasonably coherently in public and I actually had the knowledge kind of off the top of my head. And then if someone was like, well, let me ask this really pedantic question about this random title that you just licensed that nobody else knows about, but I do apparently. Um, I was the <laughs> one who was most likely able to kind of have an answer for that. <laughs> like get so, a job, kid. <laughs> Are we going to, you know, do X, Y, and Z in the translation? Um, You know, the marketing yeah. people would be like, I don't know. <laughs> And so then it would be my job to kind of talk people down about that. So talk people um, down.
1: Important yeah. Uh Lisa, uh, why
2: you, um, Lisa, you can finish up your uh,
1: sorry
3: origins. Yeah, <laughs> my origin story. That's cool. Let's see. So at the time I started working for you guys, so by then I, I think I was still writing for Curiosity. Maybe I don't remember where exactly that. Li- it all kind of blurs. You know how blog sites just kind of slowly stop happening until one day you realize you haven't done it in a year. Yeah. Um, so I was working for you guys. I was still doing a lot of freelance site for uh, different web comics and artists, working full-time, pre-press, staffing, and running conventions for a bunch of years. That was exhausting, but amazing. So, yeah, so I got really into doing work for you guys, which is great, because I got to take a lot of the skills that I had gotten through just freelance web work and print press and actually putting them towards uh, comics in a different way. So I got to learn a lot. Um, one of the things about doing mostly freelance, because um, I've never had formal education for web work or writing or graphic design or pretty much anything that I make <laughs> my living off of. Yeah. Um, I've just I've been doing it my entire life. So like you just you learn um, from people from experience from many, many, many mistakes. So I learned a lot from you guys and I love that um, especially with the print department there I could uh like lay out comics and stuff. Uh, As opposed to you know, a million one business proposals at my day job. But yeah, so that continued on for how long have I been working for you guys? Two years? I don't
1: time close to three now because it was before Sparkler launched, wasn't it? I think it was.
2: Yeah, just before. At least from yeah, from a design perspective, because you're the one who did our offbeat covers for the reprints. Yep, those came out before Sparkler. Before Sparkler launched, so
3: my first full book design for for comics. That's very, very yeah, good. Right. And it was an offbeat, beat, which I loved, like as I was, you know, talking to you guys, you asked if I wanted to do that. I'm like sitting here and I kind of glanced to my left, this giant offbeat poster on my wall. And I'm, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I would love to do that. While at the same time, That's like, well, like sweaty palm being like, what if it sucks? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it such a disservice. <laughs> it's going to be horrible. That That is also a warning to anyone who wants to work in the industry that they love. You, if you don't feel fear, you're probably not doing it right because Mm. And I, I feel scared so much the time because you really love something and you want to do your absolute best. But everyone's got to learn from your experience. Yeah. Today I'm working full time for actually Seven Seas Entertainment. Uh, and how that happened was actually someone who I had done some web work for recommended me to uh, Seven Seas um, because they needed a new website for their new game division, uh, Seven Seas Games. So they came to me and said, hey, would you be interested in building this site for us? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I'd love to work for a, a company and do that. So I built the website. Um And then as we were launching, I just kind of, as happens in small businesses, you tend to kind of end up helping out in different ways and maybe what you originally asked, Um which is, again, I loved it. It was cool. I got to learn a lot about this new uh company they were putting together, uh, which is 7C, uh, putting out uh, putting uh, board games. Hmm. Um so anyway I launched the site and then they said hey you know you did really good work would you be interested in doing more with 7Cs because they knew at that point that I had you know been a critic for a long time and obviously had a big long obsession problem I used problem lately <laughs> So I said sure so we they you know we just discussed different things I could do um by then I had done a couple logo designs um for some series I think my first think one was uh probably Nurse Tomie's once Infirmary an ancient magus bride, like that. Mm. Yeah. So then I got asked to be uh, full-time staff, and it was interesting because at the time it wasn't really, none of us really knew exactly what I would be doing, um, but they just needed somebody else to kind of do a bunch of different things, and it's always been, I guess, a fortunate skill set of mine that I'm decent at a lot of different stuff.
1: Mm. Oh my god, yeah. You're a Jill of all trades.
3: Now I work there, and I'm uh my official title is Assistant Editor, um, because I do assist the editor a lot putting out uh so I get to work on all the books we do, which is fantastic. I also manage the website, websites, social media, and a bunch of other really exciting projects that we can't talk about yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, lots of different stuff and it's just been fantastic. Like I, I've been working there full time since I think May. Um, so not too long, but I have learned so much and done so many different things that like, it's a wonder my head is still attached to my body. <laughs> it's
1: funny also that, um, you know, you were working for Sparkler sort of, uh, kind of under me. I don't know, whatever. I was, whatever. And then you got picked up at Seven Seas and suddenly you were my supervisor there. So like, I was your supervisor <laughs> in one company. <laughs> and then like.
3: Yeah. And I remember I said that to you, like at TCAP, because TCAP was in May and I had pretty much just gotten hired at, uh, at Seven Seas, and before I went to TCAF, or actually, I think it was, like, while I was at the airport, I got an email saying, like, can hey, you look over um, the script uh, that uh, Leanne turned in? And I was, like, I have to, I'm editing Leanne's script, but she always edits my work at the other place. <laughs> but then we got to TCAF, and I was, like, guess what, Leanne? You're my boss at your company, but I'm, like, your boss at this other company.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it works, it's good. We have a good, you know, <laughs> give and take. <laughs>
3: Which I'm sure at the time I, I said it and af- right after I said it, I, was, I sound like a total. dick. It's, it's, no, no, it's it's great. That's it's always funny. That's we no, of- it. You guys definitely helped me. I I know get the work at Seven C's because a lot of what I do at Seven C's is very near to what I was doing in a lot of ways at, uh, at Sparkler. So yeah,
1: and I was actually not that surprised you ended up there because Seven C's had a big hiring thing for a while. They expanded their titles immensely and all of a sudden like i had applied at just the right time because uh they picked up the alice in the country of hearts license um after i'd done it at tokyo pop so i was like you know uh, hey i did this before you want me to continue it with you guys etc and from that point it was like you know they were hiring so they're like oh who else do you know and blah blah blah. and um so i recommended i was surprised when i heard lisa was there i'm like did i recommend lisa because i recommended like almost everybody i knew um because seven seas is like we kind of need to staff a lot of books that just came out who do you know who's around in the manga industry who knows what they're doing and i'm like well, a bunch of kind of 30 somethings who never left um but always you know people who'd been laid off by tokyo pop or even there were one or two people i knew from fandom that's another thing that um you know how to get kind of started because a lot of kids ask how do you get a foot in this industry how do you start in this industry besides being really self-motivated and trying to you know learn through experience and fandom and stuff um Meeting people in other companies, Um, like, you know, you don't harass people at cons or anything, but, um, you know, you can meet them through a lot of these things. Uh, Comment on their blog a lot and say, I really like what you're doing, because, again, a lot of editors have side blogs or whatever. If if you uh, have a series that you really like and you write to the company or the person who worked on it and say, hey, I liked what you did for the following reasons, you know, just go go to panels, meet somebody at the end, Uh, you know, like, just try and meet people, because a lot of, uh, when it comes to freelance especially, it's like they're looking for somebody who would be easy to work with. Um, and if they have some kind of an experience or whatever, because it's hard to just like a lot of these places, especially now don't just have job postings. They do occasionally for like full-time work. Like I've definitely seen Yen have a job pop up, uh, one or two jobs pop up and same thing with Viz. A lot of them also do internship programs. Um, I think Viz, doesn't Viz still do that, Lillian?
2: Yeah, Viz does.
1: Yeah, Tokyo Pop used to back in the day. That's sometimes mm-hmm.
2: a foot in the door. Uh, we actually. There's a really excellent foot in the door. I mean, I'd say that, yeah. like, from my perspective, the challenge is finding somebody who's not just enthusiastic about the work, but can do the work on the back end and be reliable about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's troubling in the industry right now, is that, particularly, I'd say this is mostly from an editorial perspective. Like, I think you can get a lot of talented freelancers from design and from a lot of the kind of these artistic aspects, but that aren't necessarily. They translate just as well whether you're, you're working in English or you're working on stuff that's Japanese. Like if you're a good web designer, you're a good web designer, period.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What's kind of weird about the translated manga industry is that you're working in translation. And so some sort of concept, not only of just how Japanese works, but really how to be a good English speaker as well. Um, and then like what actually works on a printed page in English versus Japanese, I think is a skill set that takes some time to acquire. Yeah. Um, and it's why I'm really grateful that I worked at a staff job at Tokyo Pop is because I came in with a prestigious degree in English but and a, a lot of love of comics, but no real experience in like how a comic book is actually assembled and like how big the font should be, what fonts look good where, uh, what really works for cover design from kind of a sales perspective in, in this industry versus sort of the mainstream print industry because those are different beasts. And I wouldn't really have gotten the sort of training that I did, which allows me to have my freelance career now, if I hadn't had that staff job. And I think that's a real challenge for people who want to get into it from an editorial side these days, is that there's really only a handful of companies that have that kind of staff job where you can go from a pretty low level of experience and get trained up in such a way that you're going to be really valuable. And I, I know this for a fact because I, I talked to to my boss at, at Crunchyroll about this, of, like, how difficult it is to recruit new staffs. So you have a lot of people with enthusiasm and maybe a little bit of experience, but they either – they don't have the sticking power necessarily. They're not going to stick around for the long haul, which mm-hmm. is understandable because it's not a super rewarding <laughs> long haul <laughs> yeah. from kind of a financial stability perspective. You really – like we said, you really have to love it. But I think also who can kind of get, like – the nuance of some of the things that go into making a good translation, how to pick good sound effects for something. Um, Again, sort of font stuff. That's the thing that drives me nuts with a lot of like web manga is, is bad fonts. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Just, I I know a lot of people who are good translators, but don't necessarily know how to make English prose really work and kind of English dialogue. Um, And so you get scripts that are really repetitive and really kind of boring. And so I think that's that's an interesting sort of situation that the industry is in right now is that there's a lot of companies that are kind of staffing up in interesting ways because of the sort of expansion of the digital market, which is pretty new for licensing reasons from the Japanese side. They've been very resistant to doing anything with that for like, I don't know, five or six years. Changing now, the <laughs> um, definitely. They're way more aggressive. Yeah. Like, literally, this was the last thing I was working on at Tokyo Pop was trying to get Japanese companies to give us titles that we could put up on comixology and it only is happening almost six years later now. Like it's crazy how slow that process has been. So yeah, there's a real need for talent and I think that like finding reliable talent and, and good talent is, is a real kind of issue that we're having right now because you know, there there aren't a lot of people like me at this point, so or like you, Leanne, who have that decade of experience and can kind of go into this stuff. So yeah, I don't I don't really know what the solution is to that, except because yeah, there's there isn't a lot of like financial reward for getting trained better, but at the same time, you sort of need to be trained better in order to do your job well.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, it's so hard to get um, good experienced people who also have a passionate understanding of manga because one, the vast majority of the people in North America who read manga are younger. And there's a lot of um, not necessarily misinformation, just kind of no information about what working professionally in manga or anime in North America or even any other um, yeah art in the world is actually like. Um, so many of them, and well, you know, you see it online all the time. Oh, I could do better, or why won't you hire me? Or look how much manga I read. I should get to work for you. Um, yes, yeah. It's like. Or even people who do like, you know, I do scanlations, why can't I work in the industry? Like, there's this real disconnect on that. This is an actual job. And so, right. you know, like, you can love manga and love comics and love anime. Like, like, it is the air you breathe. But if you cannot follow directions, if you do not have the skill set, if you are not professional, if you can't, like, this is your job. And you will have days or as much as you love manga, for example, you were, you will hate your job because you have to do it. Like, you're an adult. It's a job. Um, and you're going to have to read Books that maybe you don't like or easy yeah. tedious work. Like, it is not just doing that. So many of them seem to have this thought that it's doing what they do now, just someone's handing them money. Right. Um, right. And that that's, is, that, that's, that's, that's I that's think, a very out.
2: valid point is that idea of like, it's easy to work really hard on a series that you love. So, like, if you're a scan laner who's always been doing like comics that you love kind of in your own way on your own time, like, cool. Good for you. But you're going to have to work on like, Busty Submarine Babes Volume 56 <laughs> at some point and you're going to want to jump out a window because that is absolutely not what you love and you still have to try and, and make it the best you can make it. Like, you don't always get to work on your favorite series. Um, I got to work on a lot of my favorite series again, kind of by like default and by rate of attrition, but <laughs> mm. <laughs> and also because people would just you know, I got to kind of grab things as they came up, But but now that I'm in a freelance capacity, it's really like hey, there's this work available, do you want it, yes or no? And you're like, looks like I need money, I guess I'll take that, whatever it is. So, yeah. And I mean, I'm lucky that most of the stuff that I do now is, is stuff that I really enjoy. But I've had, oh my god, I had two series in the past year that just, they were so bad. Um, mm-hmm. And one of them wouldn't have been that bad, except that it was kind of a licensing nightmare, and we kept getting changes on it, like months after we thought it was done, which is just maddening. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one is just... There's just nothing good about it. It has no redeeming qualities.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, one man, one man's trash. Remember, one man's trash.
2: No, I don't think. There's, <laughs> I can't even be someone who's anybody. reading. It. Well, it's based on a light novel series, and so I could see the light novel series being compelling, particularly in Japanese. But it doesn't translate well into manga form, and it really doesn't translate well into English. And I was, I was just like. Anything I could try, and, and the, the few times that I would try and make it better, and I'd be like, maybe if we translate it this way, then it'll be funnier. Or, like, maybe if we do it this way, then, like, it'll make more sense. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. They would get rejected. The The Japanese side would be like, nope, it needs to stick exactly to the Japanese. And I'm like, no, your average reader in the United States is not going to understand this reference, let alone the fact that it's supposed to be a joke. Yeah. Um, and that's
3: yeah, really it's
2: hard it about it was so flat. It was maddening.
1: <laughs> yeah, so. very, very briefly, the the process of bringing over um, a manga. Luline, why don't
2: you talk a little bit about that? Basically, what happens is, and this is this was true when Tokyo Pop was still around, and I think it's still mostly true. Just kind of, there's more competition. Is that most of the companies in the industry have a number of publishers in Japan that they're associated with, whether they've got some sort of joint partnership or whether they're a subsidiary or whether they just have good relationships with them over the years. Um, They've got a number of companies that they can license from. And so what usually acquisitions teams do is, you know, you've got these weekly and monthly magazines that are coming out and you're flipping through them. You're looking for stuff that you think is going to work well. You're paying attention to what's got a new anime coming out. What's got some sort of spinoff that might get some attention Um, who the hot artists are, you're paying attention to fan stuff, what's got buzz online for different reasons. And then once you decide you want to license a title, you go to the publisher and make an offer and say, this is how much money we think we'd like to give you for this. This is how many copies we think we can sell. Um, Royalty rates and stuff generally are pretty fixed. Yes or no. Um, and sometimes the publisher is like, "Yeah, sure, go ahead," and you get a really quick response. And sometimes you wait for years and years and years, and you never get a response, or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you get a response like, "Oh, by the way, we gave that to Yen Press instead," and you're like, "Ah."
3: <laughs> or when um, they, or when they just tell you, you know, "Well, we've got some other people putting bids in," so it's a right, hot right. item. And you're-
2: business are really they want to get the best that are really four companies three companies that are really like aggressively licensing manga and I know you know personally like what these two are doing so, <laughs> so yeah so then it's a question of like can we outbid so and so or is it worth outbidding so and so and sometimes it's true that somebody else has you know uh, an offer in sometimes. You know, there's there's other reasons going on behind the scenes in Japan of like why they do or do not want to license things to you. Mm-hmm. So
0: And um, also too, there's also the, the pre-built
3: in there's you know, companies that companies their publishers' companies can't license from. Yeah. Um, right. A lot of right. most of the major manga publishers in North America are affiliated in some way directly with a publisher in Japan. Right. Um, so then you get so a this of, wasn't
2: a uh, direct cause of Tokyopop's decline, but it certainly like influenced a lot of choices made by the company, was that originally Tokyopop was basically licensing from everybody. And then once Viz really stepped up to the plate, suddenly Tokyopop US couldn't license from Shueisha and Shogakkan. So mm-hmm. Shueisha is the company that does Shonen Jump, among other things. So there's a big chunk of the market that we couldn't access. And we managed to piss off Square Enix for reasons that are kind of opaque to me still. Um, So we couldn't license from them anymore. So there went stuff like Full Metal Alchemist. Um, And then Kodansha, we still had a relationship with for a long time. But because they were working a lot with Delray, and then they kind of opened up Kodansha USA, we were very limited in what titles we could get from Kodansha. So we were mostly licensing from uh, Kadokawa and Hakusensha. And Hakusensha is where, like, Fruits Basket comes from and a lot of these, like, top tier shoujo titles. So, like, that was really good for us. Kadokawa's got a lot of great stuff. But it definitely, like, who you have relationships with in Japan very much influences the caliber of titles that you can get. And yeah. kind of, not necessarily in quality, because there's a lot of quality stuff coming out from these smaller publishers, but in terms of, like, pre-existing fan awareness and titles that have a good amount of anticipation behind them. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much like the big three. And beyond that, it's a lot harder to kind of get the sort of buzz on a title that's going to help it really launch. Well, yeah, that was, that was something that Tokyo pop always wrestled with was like, if we can't get, you know, the a plus titles, how do we get the a minus titles? And You know, where are they coming from? How do we launch them? Can we turn a B-plus title into an A-minus? So, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. that's one of the things you deal with on the licensing side. And just there's really complicated reasons why publishers do or do not license to you. Like, sometimes it's because you messed something up previously, and so they're nervous about entrusting you with something. Sometimes the author has a lot of control over where their title goes, and they're like, oh, my friend got published by Dark Horse, so I want my titles to go to Dark Horse. And you're like, yeah, but you're a show, show series. Do you really like? That's not necessarily Dark Horse's wheelhouse, but okay.
3: I yeah. <laughs> think that we've come across too is sometimes like we we're interested in licensing X to you, random title. Yeah. Um, but we want to wait and see how this title that you already have is going to do. But that can be frustrating because, as anyone knows, working at licensing is a very and book publishing is a huge waiting. There's lots of waiting. license, and then you can't even put a book out for a year. So, like, that's a license, and there's a reason why most companies, the book won't be out until next year. Everyone's like, what? Why is it taking so long? There are reasons, and everyone is stuck to them. So, that's one of the things when a company in Japan is like, we're not going to license you this until we see how this does. We're like, well, that title that we have already doesn't come out for another year, and by then we want to license it. By the time it
2: happens, like, the heat on this one's going to be gone. So, Exactly. You're only hurting yourself, Japan.
3: It's like, we can understand what what you mean, but you already have, like, this book out. We're not going to have that series out for a year. You're not going to know how it did. so right. until... Yeah, so that's uh that can be a big Right. Point.
1: And not that I want to go a... into it too much, but, you know, people ask about scanlations and how does that affect things. And it is part of the overall process, I think. When, if there is something that has been scanlated and readily available and through aggregates for a really long time and it's an older series, that's less incentive for somebody to publish it in English because it's like, well, Absolutely. the hardcore's already kind of got it. You know, it, in the early days, you know, before scanlations were really a thing, this is back in like the 90s, people would basically post text translations of stuff. So you would actually still have to buy the book from Japan, either from a Japanese bookstore or whatever, and then read along with the text. So there was still plenty of incentive for somebody to buy an English version. Um, because, you know, <laughs> you have a Japanese right. book, you'd love to have English in that book. Um, and also the fact that, you know, when those, you had to be pretty hardcore to go through all that trouble to read something. So you were at the type of fan who was likely to buy it in English once it came out. Once mm-hmm. Scanlations got a lot bigger and it was like, well, now there's less incentive to buy the physical book version. And then of course, as you said, there was a lot of reasons why both from the Japanese publisher end and a little bit on the Western publisher's end, although I think Western was more aggressive in terms of having digital versions available. So kind of like the iTunes issue where it was like, well, you're, you're fighting with you know, Napster and CDs, there is no equivalent of Napster. So people are going to Napster because it's an empty market. They want digital music. Right. So right. like for a while, scanlations were getting really, really big and there was no legal alternative. So it was like if a kid was in a country, like an English speaking country that didn't even get these books, this was the only way they were going to read it. And also, of course, right. for the niche titles or whatever, but the aggregates kind of, um, you know, places like manga here and manga Fox and stuff, they ended yep. up making these scanlations where suddenly where everybody was reading it and there's an entire generation of kids who don't understand anything about where manga comes from except it's on MangaFox so it must be in English <laughs> legally and I, there's a book version? What? And you know, half time there isn't a book version because that was illegal and it was never brought over here. So right. even though working in fandom and you know, being a scanlator or doing these things on the side can sometimes help you get an in on the industry. Because you're like, well, look, I've actually been doing this, you know, some experience. You have to be very yeah. careful before you start shooting yourself on the foot, before you start tanking the industry because of how aggressive yeah. you were. And it's funny how this line slips around a lot. There have been so many arguments over Twitter, especially the last couple of months about this. But basically, like, fan entitlement has gotten to the point where some people, are, they, they think lations are a viable option when you're talking about industry trends. Instead of saying, I don't want to pay for it, they're saying, well, this is better than this version, et cetera. You know, like, I prefer this translation to this translation. It's not an issue of like, this is not part of the industry. This has always been illegal. This has always been something that even if it indirectly or directly helped the industry, it nobody's putting it out. Uh, Officially, no one's getting paid for that. You're, you're, you know, screwing over the original creators and stuff. If you're stealing it, you're stealing it. Like, own up to the fact that you're like, I'm not gonna buy it, or I'm not paying for it, or whatever. Don't say, well, I preferred the Scanlation to the English version, because, like, it's just, there's no argument there that makes sense from an industry perspective. Um, And there are some people who try to use it, you know, that there's this weird moral imperative that some people have about, you know, this translation was more faithful, therefore it has more artistic merit or whatever. First of all, a lot of the time they don't know what they're talking about because, like, they don't Japanese. Yeah, a lot of people, (laughs) they
3: they say 85% of the time, give or take, when someone tells you I read the original first, they're not (laughs) taught, they don't speak Japanese or read Japanese. It's right. A, it's a scanlation. And for them they think right. that's the real one like someone just poked a Japanese book and it became English. Plus yeah. it is right
2: pure right religion.
3: right. Just not the case. You're reading something that is translated by someone else who's likely not a professional. You can see a lot of them don't have, you know, they don't translate everything. They don't work with the the publisher, the original artist to figure mm-hmm. out certain things. It's just what people read first, thus it is their gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's really disheartening that that's this this default that people go to that it's better because it's the first one they
2: read, um, which is not. Like people's sense of like, quote unquote, authenticity is really interesting as well, because a lot <laughs> of times people will be like, it's more faithful because it reads like sort of broken English. <laughs> so like, therefore, it must be closer to Japanese because like the one semester of Japanese that I took in college, like that's my understanding of the language. And which you're like... Kind of
3: in- kind of an insult to Japanese you're like well yeah really it should should read in (laughs) crap in English because it must have read in crap in Japanese no it read beautifully in Japanese so it should read beautifully in English
2: yeah right right or at least it read with a certain amount of nuance and Mm -hmm. and like layers of meaning that like because Japanese is a language that can kind of be spoken in sentence fragments like I can see why translators do that but it's like the way you actually translate that and and make it into good english is to add more words like english has a really extensive vocabulary so the things that are expressed with grammar in japanese like whether you're using like certain speech patterns and stuff you add words in english to kind of convey that same meaning like that's how you get that character nuance across that's how you keep people from all sounding the same because they don't sound the same in japanese it's one of the things that's really fascinating about manga is how much character voice individual panels have. And like, you can tell even, you know, just from a speech balloon with nobody in the panel, you know, based on how that's the the style of conversation is like, which character is speaking that line. And if you can't convey that in English, you're failing as a translator. And it's a challenge. Like, that's why people work hard at this. This is why this is an apprenticeship industry is because it's the reason why I failed the ADV test, you know, when I was a senior in college and could probably pass it now is because I've accumulated knowledge over a decade that's made me a better worker. Um, It's made me understand this process better. And I think people who try and skip that or try and kind of ignore the the work that goes into it, uh, it's just really frustrating. Yeah, and I'd say the thing as well is that there's a sense that the sort of the manga piracy issue of like, oh, we're going to stick it to the man and these corporations, like they don't (laughs) need this money and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, for one thing, you have no idea how small this industry is in the US. So (laughs) if you're sticking it to the man, you're really screwing a very small number of people really hard. But, uh, you know, the secondary thing is, like, it's maddening to see a series that has a tremendous fan base online. And my classic example for this is Gakuen and Alice, which yeah. is one of the last series that I worked on. There were literally, like, 3 million people reading that on Manga Fox in 2010. And we were selling less than 3,000 copies of that in English. Okay. And that was a fucking hard title to work on. It was really difficult. It's really text-heavy. It's dense. It's long. It was something that I cared about, and I put a lot of time and effort into it. And it was absolutely... drove me up the wall to see these particularly bad scanlations. Like, these weren't even just, like, pretty good scanlations that were really popular. They were atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> Third okay. hand from Taiwanese scans. So like the, the image quality was bad. The scripts were basically incoherent. And there were literally millions of people reading it. And I was irate about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely irate.
3: I was going to say, it's also really disheartening in those situations. And this ties a bit to the licensing too, is when you can go to like a publisher, or sometimes even the publishers talk to the manga creator themselves, obviously, because it's their work. And you can say things like, oh, this title has a huge fan following in North America. Like, they really love your work. And then it gets brought over here, and it's like, they just, like, I can't imagine how that must feel. Like, when you have this this fandom who is like, we are the absolute, you know, we love this title. We love it so much. We love everything this author does. But as far as the author can tell, we don't give a crap. Like, they don't see the numbers, the sales. They get, like, authors, the, the people who create these books get paid when you buy a book. They get royalties for purposes they get money up front you're directly supporting them and telling them you like their work instead all they see is someone bragging online about how yeah i I love your work i stole it (laughs) right right Um,
2: thank
3: thank you and i think Um, this is something
2: that particularly affects like the smaller authors out there so uh, someone like you know tachibana higuchi who, who does gaku and alice like that was a huge success everywhere except the united states so like she's doing fine um, <laughs> I'm sure she works her butt off because anybody who's drawing a manga series works her butt off, but I think she's getting pretty well compensated for that overall. So that was really just sort of my personal grudge. But I think it's crazy when like there's a smaller series, or like a niche series and people will go on and on about how much they love it and then not show up to buy it on the back end. Like I, I can see this. I, I follow a lot of the other publishers on Tumblr, but I particularly like the Kodansha USA uh, Tumblr and they keep going back and forth about Vinland saga and like that just does not sell that well. And it's a great book that they put a ton of effort into and people are like, when's the next game coming out? And they're like, well, we're working on it. But like, honestly, if you guys want more of this, you got to buy it. Um, Like you got to put your money where your mouth is on this one. And I think that's the other frustrating thing that we would get a lot at Tokyo pop is by the time I got there, we were getting to the point where, Tokyo Pop had way too many titles coming out, and some of which were not great sellers for whatever reason. And so we would put things on hiatus or they would get canceled or whatever. And people started to be like, well, I don't want to buy a series if I don't know if it's going to get finished. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay. Oh, you, you, less- hear that a, you hear that a lot now. Sh- is The thing that guarantees that a series won't get finished is if you don't buy it. Yeah. There's limited shelf space in the United States and, you know, in, in the chain bookstores like Barnes & Noble, everything is sold on consignment. So you can sell in 20,000 copies of something, and if it doesn't sell, next month, 19,000 copies come back to you. Yeah. Um, and then they're then you get to Volume 2, and they're like, well, we only sold 1,000 copies of Volume 1, so we're going to buy 500 copies of Volume 2. Um,
0: mm-hmm. And if you're in a
2: series that's 20 volumes long, you're like, well, shit that's a lot of money I'm going to be spending on this series that 500 people are buying. Yeah, And I think that's something that either people don't understand or don't, don't care about. And like, I don't want to be like, wah wow, wah, I feel bad for publishers because whatever they're, they're businesses and you know, you have to learn how to run a business, but like, but there's a disconnect between people who say that they care about this industry and particularly people who want to participate in it. Um, and who say, I'd love to have a job in the manga industry. Okay. How much manga have you bought in the last year yeah. like where are you reading your stuff? Where are you getting your information? what are yeah. you looking at what, you know what, what do you want and about the publishing process. I
1: know this this might sound um, a little bit like a drink the Kool-Aid argument, but I will definitely yeah. say that those of us who worked in the industry back in the the manga heyday, like, I was buying, like, three manga a week. Like, I'd go to my Walden books and, and whatever was, you know, that doesn't even exist anymore, and just kind of buy. And from Tokyo Pop, too, and I worked for them. And yeah. my parents were like, why don't you get comp copies? I'm like, well, I didn't work on this one, and, you know, I'm part of the industry. I want to sort of buy into it if there's something that I like. I want the creator to get a cut and etc. and And you want your local
2: bookstore to know, oh, there's somebody who's buying these books. Exactly. I'm
1: not saying that you need to go to the poorhouse for it. But it's like if you like something, go go buy it. And like same thing, like I've been part of companies that had a Kickstarter and like I pledged to the Kickstarter if it was struggling. You know, like it it's kind of like an all-in process because you have a, a vested interest in this. You want this industry to succeed. And like, so you're a part of it and you understand how it is. Sometimes you think you can lead by example, be like, well, I bought this, whatever. Actually, one of the, this is going to sound really terrible for a second, but there is a manga slash anime out there called World's Greatest First Lover, Sekaiichi Hatsukoi, which yeah. is a sublime <laughs> title, which is actually about a monthly uh, girls' shojo magazine. And I'm not exaggerating when I say Sparkler was largely kind of based off of this fictional, um, magazine yeah. and how it was run with less sexual assault, cause it's a yaoi, so. Yeah. <laughs> but it's basically about these guys who run yeah. a- So
2: gender swap all of the characters and take out, like, all the, the sex, rape, yeah. <laughs> and just <laughs> even we'll the regular sex, we not- yeah, like even the consensual sex, like
1: Sparkler is not nearly that sexy. But but one of the things that really resonated with me, and again, part of the reason I like this show is because not only did it teach you things about the manga industry, but it's stuff I'd already experienced, you know, through, you know, third hand or even just being a freelancer was there were editors who were like, well, this other editor is doing this series and they like it. And I went and bought a copy because I wanted to support the creator. Um, and also Japan is the thing about the, if you're a true fan, you buy three copies. You guys know this, right? Maybe.
2: Oh yeah. I have heard yeah, that. So it's in Japan, been a while since I've heard that. Yeah. But, yeah.
1: but so, and this is also, I think relevant now because the industry is struggling, even in Japan, that in Japan, if you really love something, you buy three copies of it. One copy is for, you know, mint condition, you storage, you keep it on your shelf. One copy is for you to read over and over and over. And the third copy is to lend to other people to let them read it too. And this might sound really silly. But a lot of the Japanese industry, I mean, people wonder why there's so much, people wonder why there's so much like moe and things out there that they're like, wow, it's just for kind of like, you know, shut an otaku, you know, whether or not that, you know, stereotype is true. But they're like, why is it all this like super fan heavy stuff that is no mainstream appeal? It's because these people go out and buy three <laughs> copies of it. Like, <laughs> and like, as weird as that is, as an industry sustaining model, and it's not. Like a great model or anything, but publishing the profit margins are really slim. Like you said, bookstores buy on consignment because like, you know, you sell a book for $17 or something or, or, you know, in the case of a manga, it's like $10. And just the printing costs and all the people who had to work there and the fact that the bookstores only have so much space, the fact that books are heavy to ship places. Like this is not like,
2: like shipping books from Alabama where they're stored to you know washington state where they're being sold like that's a logistical challenge yeah <laughs> like, in a way that you know a country the size of japan just doesn't face
1: yeah so. and that's why japan has those big fat monthly manga uh yeah. magazines and we don't like shipping was a big issue with that they also just have a much bigger comic consuming uh uh, population they, they... And
2: got, you know you still have newsstands in Japan where there aren't any mm-hmm. newsstands here anymore because people don't go on trains so yeah but anyway there's there's a lot of complicated reasons for that Um, one thing I was going to say though is like I don't want to make this about like making manga and anime consumers feel bad because yeah, yeah. this is I agree. a global issue with media in general is the mm-hmm. disconnect between consumption of media and the creation of media. And it's it's true in film TV, it's true in video games. Mm-hmm. And I think like there's there's really some like re-education that needs to happen about what it means to be invested in something as a fan. Um and that if you like something and you want to see more of it, you gotta support it. You got to yeah, just just get the word out, and then if you can't pay for it, then find somebody
3: who can pay for it, you know? Share or, share it with other go, people who might Or go to a, to do a it. library. Like, yeah, go, a go to a library. works, too, yeah. like People yeah. act like there's no way to get some of this stuff. Like, they're, oh, I'm poor. I know what it's like to be a teenager and be poor. Like, Yeah, you an adult and be poor. Everyone's been there. But, like, yeah. it's not yeah. an excuse. And it's, again, it's a fan entitlement. And I don't want to make, you know, everyone feel bad, too. Um, but, like, if you can't afford something, unless it's food and a roof over your head, it is no one's problem. Like, you, you're not yeah. owed
2: entertainment. <laughs> Just because you can't afford it doesn't mean you get to have it automatically for free.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, I hate that entitlement. So, I don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: But, and it's it's interesting because it's, it's really... I wouldn't say that it's entirely a generational thing, but it's definitely... That disconnect is a lot stronger with people who are younger, who I think grew up with the Internet in a different way than we did. Yeah. So, or rather, well, like, it's I think you're a little different, Lisa, but Le- Leanne and I grew up essentially without the Internet and then came into the Internet in our sort of young adulthood. And that I think that gives you a really different perspective on, yeah, sort of the challenges involved with producing and consuming this stuff. Like, we remember the days when you had to trade people for like th- fifth generation videotapes with fan subs on them, as opposed to, you know, when I hit college and suddenly BitTorrent was around and I was like, holy crap, I can download DVD quality episodes of Naruto that are fan sub for like <laughs> in <Yeah>. 10 minutes. <laughs> now instead of waiting 2 weeks to get something that looks like crap and plays on my VCR um oh and just like Crunchyroll is streaming
1: all of the anime now or like Hulu yeah, has like Junja Romantica available. season 3 on it i mean like what right. the hell kind of crazy la la land do we live in now like yeah it's so easy to get stuff.
2: Good habit. <laughs> well, it,
1: and it's so easy to get stuff legally. So I will say the one, again, I agree. We shouldn't, I don't want to he- be here and make people feel bad. There's just been a couple arguments on Twitter where you're just like, I can't believe I have to argue this with people. But the good news <laughs> on this is, as we said, the people who are part of this industry, it is fans. There's like a tiny percentage maybe of people sometimes in like managerial or maybe some of the tech support, whatever the case is, who might not be manga fans, but like, The vast majority of people who are especially working with the content are huge manga nerds. Lily and I are 33. I'd say we're probably around the average age of people who are in the manga industry, and a lot of them have been around for five or more years, you know, because there wasn't a heck of a lot of hiring after the manga bubble burst. A lot of the people who, you know, the manga industry was sort of flooded with experienced people. The people who stuck around are ones who were around before the manga bubble burst. Or had been very involved in fandom in Lisa's case. And you know, Lisa was I don't want to say just fandom, you're working with a lot of webcomic and indie and, and press and stuff online. I, I I understand that not everybody agrees the way that something you know, the timing of something being published, the actual scripts, which is something I've gotten reamed for in the past publicly for certain things thing that I described.
2: That. Right. So I think it's an interesting conversation. But what, the anyway, localization? Keep-
1: yeah, I won't I won't go into things like that. There are plenty of reasons why you can disagree why something was done, but like you can't write off the entire business model as a result of something that you don't like the way that it was done. Partially because, like we had said, I think there's a lot of misconception about how true, quote unquote, a scanlation is, because this could be a translation of a Chinese, like, basically, like, stuff comes out in Japan, and sometimes it comes out in Japan, uh, sorry, comes out in China, in Chinese, on Chinese newsstands, around the same time it comes in Japan, people are actually translating it from the Chinese. So that's already been translated once before it's coming back. Whatever the case is, I think people have this misconception about what is authentic. And then also understand that that is completely separate from the industry. Nobody's being compensated or paid. It makes – it has – Very little relevance on whether or not something will be available in English on a bookstore for you ever or if this creator will ever see money for it. It's one of those many things that acquisitions take and keep in mind, like, oh, there's got a lot of fandom buzz, but if there are Mm. too many scanlations, then maybe they won't license it. That it's just, that whole thing is separate and it's, it's not really supporting the industry in any, like the way that it, it supports the industry is, Dwarfed by how much it hurts the industry these days because the model has shifted with aggregates and everything. So you have to be very careful with that stuff. As much of a fan as, as much of a fan as you are, please understand how this sort of works. And also we're looking out for you. We really love manga. We want it to be the best that it can possibly be. We, a lot of the time you are working with the original licensor. Sometimes the original creator has to sign off on these things. Not, it depends Mm -hmm. kind of what it is, but there are definitely some cases where there were things that we wanted to do and the original creator was like, no, 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 like you can't. You know, it's it's an actual means through which to connect our two countries, <laughs> uh, and have these things available for as many people as possible. For it to be a global brand, for more and more people to enjoy it. So, yeah, I wish we could have a like. I feel like whenever we talk about manga industry stuff, it gets a little bit dire. <laughs> well,
3: it's also, what what you just said kind of brings up like a a good um, kind of overarching thing about transparency, um, mm-hmm. and it comes a big part about what publishing is like in Japan and just Japan uh, Japanese society in general. Um, is there's a lot of things about the process of uh, manga and anime publication that you can't talk about. Yeah. Um, whether it's things that are under contract or things that are just not proper, things that you just can't do. And um, like when you said things like people might like not like the way you translated something. Well, um, for all people know, and I know this has come up in cases where it is the original creator who's like, no, I'd rather you spell it this way or no, I'd rather you change mm-hmm. it to this because this is going to affect something in the plot later. And you can't Say, and when people then kick up a stink because it doesn't say match the scanlations, you mm-hmm. can't turn around and say, yeah, well, the author asked us to do it that way. Like, you can't do that. One, because it comes off as petty, and two, because that's between you and the creator. Mm-hmm. It is your job as a publisher to put out the best work, um, working with whoever, you know, reporting to. And yeah, there's just a lot of things about the process that you can't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you have to be professional because you're a business. Yeah. And that, that really gets spun by a lot of the, the fandom out there as, oh, they're ignoring me. <laughs> or they don't care, or they just do whatever they want. It's like, yeah, we can't explain. I'm not uh, saying, you know, everyone, saying, you know deserves everyone deserves the benefit of doubt benefit. all the time, but... Yeah, no, I agree.
1: And, and there have been a couple times where I went publicly and was sort of explaining some of my justification for why I did certain things that I did in adapting a script and it kind of made things worse, quite frankly. Like I tried <laughs> to have, you know, like, cause everybody always says, don't engage with the fans, go with the fans, uh, you know, if they're mad at you, especially. And like, as a freelancer, I had a little bit more freedom and that it was like, I wasn't fully, you know, I was representing a company, but not, you know, but like, I really tried to reach out to the fandom in certain areas and explain sort of my reasoning in, in kind of a professional way. And, then it became a lot more personal. Then I was getting more personal attacks. And they're like, oh, that's your reason? Well, I disagree with that reason. So now don't buy these books anymore. Now definitely boycott this entire company. So it's like, and I know that the majority of fandom people are nice. And they, they have these couple few people who are just yelling and making things worse. But that's what happens, guys. Like, if if trying to reach out to fandom and the loudest people there are the ones who are calling for your heads or telling people, go get the scanlation instead of giving this company money, like... Now you're definitely not going to be part of the process. I used to read, I mean, I still do to a point. Um, I used to read like every review I could possibly find of any project that I had done. Because I wanted as much feedback as possible. Like, did people like this? Did people hate this? Whatever, yada, yada, yada. And as a lot of manga editors will tell you, sometimes you have to stop. Because your sanity becomes an issue. You have a certain number of sanity points. And if people are basically so upset about a particular translation or whatever, that it just turns into these like wild personal attacks, these like really involved. In my case, there was an essay about all the things that I had done wrong and why I was a bad person and stuff for uh, adapting a script. It's like, I would love to have actual feedback, but if it's going to be that, that much vitriol and that personal and that like really kind of cruel and mean, like, I can't do my job and read that sort of thing. Like, that's not the kind of criticism that's going to help me, you know? Because, like, after a point, you have to kind of write it off, because you're like, well, I can't read this and still want to do my job. Like, it kind of brings down your incentive for getting that kind of feedback, because we're all human beings. (laughs) Like, and after a certain amount of time, you you can't just hear people who are like, no, they've done everything wrong, and they're they're not looking for anything good. They're only looking for what's bad and trying to rally up other people, like, let's do a letter writing campaign to the company. And it's like, I mean, uh, feedback is good, but like either be, you get, you can be nice about it. <laughs> like you don't have to do it, especially if it's an ultimatum about like, well, I'm going to just get the scanlation. <laughs> it's like, now they're definitely not going to listen to you because you don't, uh, you know, you don't believe in the industry where people should be paid for their work, including the original creators. So be kind, you know, you can be critical and be kind.
3: like Be constructive. Yeah.
1: Not yeah, exactly. Con- constructive. And also just, you know, don't try to have a certain degree of professionalism and that's this kind of comes full circle back to how i got my original job is when i wrote a strongly worded email to tokyo pop about those sailor moon uh, novels i was trying to be constructively critical i I wrote it politely but i was just like i don't think you understand how much of a fandom there is behind there i think you should hire a fanfic writer you know i know that Mm -hmm. we've there's a lot of catharsis here this is a huge thriving community and i think that we understand the source material we also have connections to other people in fandom blah 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 and I ended up getting hired after, you know, I applied and stuff after that. But they they wrote back to me because they were like, oh, this was really good criticism. Or this was really, in, you know, you had some sort of insight here that you were saying. You were reaching out to us in a professional capacity, making professional suggestions, not just like, you know. A death threat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously never death threat. But even just stuff like, I can't believe you guys are doing this. Don't you understand? You know, a million question marks, exclamation points. I will Couple say. Couple curse
3: words and no Yeah.
1: Comments. I will say that, like, Sparkler has been... <laughs> really blessed. And then our fandom is like 99% amazing. But occasionally we do get weird hate mail <laughs> about people being like, how do you run your business this way? Or don't you understand blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, it'll just be like this snipe through social media where it's like <laughs> people write this like angry three sentence thing. And I don't know what, like, does that make you feel better? Like, why are you doing this? Like, no creator is going to take this seriously. No company is going to take this seriously. It's just going to, you know, they say like and I feel like a lot of the time it's kind of like. Do you really think
2: we haven't thought about that already? Well, like, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that that's some of it. Is like if you're just gonna send like two seconds of like, you guys suck. You don't know what you're doing, and you're like, well, we sort of do. So. <laughs> But, like, if you're not going to add anything more than that, I'm not sure what you expect us to do differently. So (laughs) Yeah, and, you
1: know, we've gotten some feedback letters where, you know, Lisa also, you know, she kind of made us a free website and sent it to us. But there were also other people I hired because they wrote these really beautiful emails about, like, oh, you know, I thought about Sparkler and it's really great and I'd like to work for you guys. You know, have you ever thought of maybe doing this? You know, but in a polite way, not just being like, have you ever thought of doing that? And it's like, yes, we probably have. But it's like there are people who were really good. In fact, a lot of our fans we ended up hiring in some capacity. Like there was, uh, you know, a couple people ended up being interns. A few people we got freelance because, like, we're like, God, we, I know you read this series and you're really into it and it really needs a proofer. Would you be interested in that? Um, one of our biggest fans we just hired as a sales rep. You know, like if mm-hmm. you have a lot of good constructive criticism. And it doesn't have to just be the coolie. because a lot of these people are like, yeah, I love Sparkle. I love this title. But sometimes they do have really valid constructive criticism, but they don't, their letters are not all incredibly critical because, you know, nobody wants to hire someone who's just going to tell them how they're doing it wrong, especially if you don't have that much of a leg to stand on. Like if you've been in publishing for 20 years and you're like, well, you guys should probably do this. That's one thing. But like if you're, if you are from the internet and you think you know how these, these businesses work and therefore you're an expert. It's like, we've got to be careful and have a little humility there, but there's a, you know, you can really reach out to a lot of these industries if you want a job in it. You know, this was our original topic, kind of how to get into the manga industry. Like you can definitely become a part of the industry through constructive criticism, through being part of the fan circuit, through press, through all these different ways that we kind of got into it, but you have to be professional and understand that there are human beings here and, you know, be, be part of the process. There's, we need positivity in this industry. It is very, very hard. No money, bad hours. We lo- fucking love manga and comics. And <laughs> so we want to stay here as long as possible. So, you know, positivity. That's the sparkler model. We want all positivity. Yeah. Bring everybody up, you know, cause there's no real purpose not to bring people up, you know. I think people worry about artificial inflation. It's like, the risk of that is so low. <laughs> I think in comics, artificially inflating someone, it's like, well, that balloon's going to pop pretty soon, and you know, like, they're going to get, believe me, they're going to get torn down in a lot of other realms. It's the internet, man, so. Does anybody have anything positive they want to add?
2: Do we want to talk about localization at all, or, like, what we think makes, like, a good translated title, or, I mean, I think that that's sort of part of, you know, we're talking about our experience in the industry, and, like, things that we've learned over the years.
3: Um, um we go back to what we are because we got yeah. into this conversation because we were talking about the steps of localizing. We We got to Oh yeah.
2: So so you make an application to the publisher in Japan and hopefully they give you the title that you want and then it goes into a very long process of translation, adaptation and like actually laying the book out. And so I think the thing that the, the thing that really causes this process to take so much time is that the way you sell a title into bookstores or comic book stores in a process that starts like 6 months to a year in advance. Like, that's when these catalogs go out for the, like, the seasonal sell season. So, like, people are probably working on summer 2016 right now, if not fall 2016, um, which means the publishers need to know what they're publishing. The stores need to know what they're buying. So that's, you know, any new licenses have already been acquired by now. All of that paperwork is done. And it's a year before that book's going to see, sh- like, uh, a store shelf. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's a huge lead time involved in that just because of the nature of how, Retail in the United States works. But at this point, you know, the the volumes have been sent from Japan. The translator types them up into a script. Depending on which company you're working for, you may or may not have an English adaptation, which is where someone like me or Leanne might come in. Uh, the editor goes in and does a pass to make sure that everything is formatted properly and that when you hand it to a layout person who's going to put all the text in the balloons and subtitles for the sound effects or however you're handling that, they've got a good clear roadmap for what goes where, and they're not going to get confused and put stuff in the wrong bubble. Then it all gets printed out, usually, or sent as a PDF, and the editor goes through and looks and makes sure that everything is in the right bubble. Is there anything they want to change? Is this sentence too long? Did I spell something wrong? Did we change the names for stuff? Do we have to update something? And all of sort of the the copy editing and project management that goes into that. And then usually four or five months out in advance of release time, you actually send it off to the printer. Printer prints your copies. They ship them to a warehouse somewhere. Several months later, they ship them out to stores. They end up in store shelves. And the book that you touched last six months ago suddenly you have a physical copy in your hands and it's very exciting (laughs) and then it actually is the process of selling the book so like things like with the the advent of harry potter and twilight there's this sense that like books have really strict release dates the same way that movies do. And that's not entirely true. Like, things kind of maybe they'll leak out a little early sometimes. Sometimes they'll leak out a little bit later. Like, they're supposed to show up in a certain week, but stores are not always, like, perfect about putting stuff up exactly on time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, except sometimes in the mainstream comics industry where you've always got that Wednesday release date. Yeah. yeah. So then it's a matter of, like, people going into that store and finding that book. And if that book sits on the shelf for too long and they don't think anybody's gonna buy it, they get to send it back again. That's in bookstores, yeah. not in comic stores generally. Exactly. I had something else I was going to add about the production process. Cover design. So as part of that from like an editor's perspective, a lot of what I did at Tokyo Pop was also liaising with sales and marketing. So part of the process of prepping that catalog for summer fall 2016 is making sure you have cover art for everything, making sure you have back cover copy, making sure that the rating for something is correct, and there's a whole process of like determining what gets what rating, how like language wise content wise are there things that bookstores and libraries want to know about that you need to kind of put out there in the catalog so that people can make a good buying decision is it super clean for volumes
1: one and two and then there's an incredibly graphic sex scene in volume three
2: yeah exactly and a lot of like the the thing that's that's crazy is that when i started working at tokyo pop most of what we were doing was stuff that had a pretty large backlog in japan already but that's not the case anymore you're you're almost never picking up a series that has more than a handful of volumes out already well not almost never but it's it's more unusual these days. And so you know, you you pick up something based on volume one or two, and you don't know how long it's going to run. You don't know if it's going to be six volumes or if it's going to be 60. And you can get some indications from the magazine, like Haksensha ne- and, you know, Hanato Yume is never going to be, like, super racy. <laughs> <laughs> you can be pretty confident that something like Fruits Basket, even if you're only six volumes in, isn't going to have, like, a graphic sex scene at some point. Or, yeah. you know, something capitated. so whereas but that's a problem for some other titles where yeah like the standards in different countries are really different as well so like what's sort of acceptable to show up in a japanese comic which is just like childhood nudity that's actually something that like in dragon ball in ranma you know you see ranma's boobs a lot with like little nipples and stuff and you're like that's a okay in kind of a younger teen oriented magazine in japan which is what that ran in i think but like that's pretty touchy here like usually if you have defined nipples that means that it has to go up to like an older teen rating mm. and you're like it's such a weird thing to have conversations about like are the nipples really defined or yeah. <laughs> how much hell do we have with her boob area we've had meetings like, about this a, that panty shot <laughs> like is there like a lot of camel toe or just like a little camel toe and like those are legit conversations that you have or, as part or of how the much Campbell Toe does apartment. your
3: audience expect. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's like sometimes you get you get sort of scorned for doing like the opposite, which is if you rate something at a higher rating level and then you're, you're not actually pulling through with like more mature content, then people will be like, "What the hell? I wanted some boobs. I wanted some yeah. TNA." You know, this is it's a more of a problem with boys love actually is, I think. We always mm-hmm. found with Lou that um, titles that were mature but only had, like, a very discreet sex scene at the end tended to sell a lot worse than titles that were either squarely older teen or, like, mature with a lot of mature content. Yeah. So saying that something's, oh, it's going to be mature, you're expecting a certain level of, of sexiness with that. And if you're not really following through on that, then people are going to be disappointed. So, yeah. which again is a funny conversation to be having. So. I will say, sorry, this is a, a reference for people. Um, you talk about stuff that
1: the, the rating changes drastically. I don't know if anybody, any of you guys are familiar with the boys love manga super lovers by, uh, <laughs> yeah, Miyuki I'm Abe. Really,
2: I have read it. I think,
1: I think but... it's Miyuki. It, last, the manga last name is Abe. I can't think of her first name. I think it's Miyuki, but you read the first volume of that. I think maybe two volumes and it's this really beautiful story about a guy who's raising this little boy sort of as his brother um like it's a family story (laughs) you know like his mother adopts this kid and this kid's you know a little messed up and you know this this older guy's a little messed up too and he's like maybe I can kind of find myself through raising this boy and it's a beautiful story and then you get to like volume three (laughs) you can probably guess what eventually happens but the early volumes are almost like self-contained like I've never read something where the beginning was so incredibly misleading about where it was going um, and in fact, the fact that the title in English is "Super Lovers," I was like, "Why are they calling this story? This has nothing to do with it. It's a beautiful family story. It's also a very deceptive title because by the time it gets really edgy, you're so emotionally invested, it's like you can't really turn away. It's almost like a train wreck, you know, one of those great stories where you're like, "Oh God, no!" But like, you're not going to close the book because it's like fascinating. But I think they might be making an anime of it. <laughs> Like, curious. Oh, wow. But I know that I was watching a live stream of the DMP girls during I think the Finder Kickstarter or something and people were calling out licenses in uh real time being like, could you license blah, blah, blah. And they were these two women and somebody typed yeah. in like super, lo- super lovers and one of them was like, what's super lovers? And the other one just kind of like dropped her head. She's like, all right, guys, we can't talk about this. <laughs> She's like, I can't even go into the the issues with super lovers now. But um, anyway, I just thought that that's a good example of something that would be nigh impossible to license for... Many reasons.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. Like there's a lot of like sort of I would call low level incest titles in like <laughs> shojo fandom where it's like, he's my brother, but he's like my stepbrother or whatever, and it's like we're gonna hook up and you're like, that's weird. <laughs> um that's like A okay in like a Japanese romance apparently, but is a major squick for a lot of Western readers.
3: Student so. teacher. It's way way student way more teacher, common in like, manga. manga. I kind of like, like student, student teacher step, it's also yeah What, Lisa? I said like in Korean Manwa, we got a lot of it out here. I swear every title they were cousins, they'd always find out three <laughs> volumes in there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: Keep family.
2: So, yeah, that's. I mean, that's a really interesting challenge with licensing as well, is like this weird balance between the target audience in Japan versus the target audience in the United States. They sometimes overlap really well, but sometimes they really don't at all. Um, I mean, actually, Boys Love is a good example of this as well, is that I don't really know how many, like, male readers there are of Boys Love in Japan, but there's there's a good number, even now, now that there's more, like, gay media in general in the United States— there's still a good number of BL readers in the United States who are guys who, yeah. are, who are a surprising number considering how kind of, like, I don't know, sort of weirdly heteronormative boys love can be sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> For something that involves people with two, two people with penises, like, it still ends up following these kind of heteronormative romance patterns a lot. Yeah. But anyway, so, like, that's a real difference, and that's something that I would talk to licensors about when I was there. They liked to quiz me on sort of stuff that I was into as well. Actually, like, if anyone's read Junjo Romantica, and knows uh, Usagi's like wacky editor from his company. Mm-hmm. Um, from what's it called? I forget what the fake publisher. The fake publisher is basically based on his his crazy editor from that is also based on a a real person who I think is the editor for Ciel. She was like the head editor for oh, yeah? the boys magazine that it ran in for a long time. And so I've met her at least once, possibly twice in Japan. And we basically sat down and she like quizzed me on who my favorite pairings were in Gundam Wing. Oh <laughs> yeah. In front of like her boss and then one of my bosses. Like the two of us were just geeking out at this restaurant and they were like, what the fuck is wrong with you two? <laughs> she's like, well, who would, who would be on top, though? It's like, do you guys have the size roll in America? And I was like, yeah, kind of. So that's it was, it was bad. yeah, I have some good stories from licensing trips, actually. That was always a trip. Literally. I got taken to a, a cross-dressing cafe by, like, the licensing staff from Enterbrain at one point, <laughs> um, which was profoundly uncomfortable. Like, it was a very odd experience for me. I was, I was describing it yesterday, actually, just kind of coincidentally, that, like, You know, it's all these really cute girls dressed up as hot boys. But they're sort of like only performing masculinity in this very kind of loose way. So, like, they were all very attractive and, like, sort of went through all these poses and stuff, but it kind of at the same time felt with this, like, giant no-homo was going on, where it's like, <laughs> we're not really guys. Like, it's not really, you know, we're not really, you know, we, whatever, and it's just I found it very strange. <laughs> I actually... I-, I was just eating it up. Like, the Enterbrain ladies and, like, you know, the other Tokyo Pop representative were like, this is amazing, and I was like, I am uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I, <laughs> See, I went, I went to a, a drag cafe as well, my 30th birthday. Birthday, actually yeah. in Tokyo I was like bring me to a boys love drag cafe I want girls just as boys and they, they all ended up geeking out with us over voice actors and stuff like <laughs> the yeah, staff yeah. there I can see where that would where that could make some people uncomfortable. I was kind of amazed that one of these girls was, like, six feet tall and was, like, really pulling off the beach. they am looking way wow. up at this girl. And she's like, uh-huh. I'm Kazu. <laughs> I'm like, what's up, Kazu? <laughs>
2: <laughs> How's the air up there, Kazu? <laughs>
1: yeah, it was... Uh, but they were all, like, really into Odon and stuff. But they did, you know, like, photo shoots where they're like, this is Prince of Tennis Day, and this is when we did, like, double cross play because we did Rose of Versailles and... Oh it's God, like a, it's a girl's great. performance thing that I think is really interesting, right. but um, anyway, we're not going to get into that. Yeah. Lisa, do you have any great stories to add about? I don't have a lot of great stories yet. Yet. <laughs> well, now you're kind of—I uh, mean, like the rest of us are—you know—besides Sparkler, we're sort of freelance. So you're the one that's like very deeply embedded in the manga industry now. Time to build up your.
3: <laughs> one thing I did forget from my my origin story when I was like—I forget what happens during years of my life around the time. Well the exact time I was working for you guys, I was working my full-time job. Actually, I left pre-press. I was working in a comic book store. And I bring this up because that's another really good way to get an idea of working in something like the publishing industry is to actually watch how it actually sells. Yeah. Uh, Because the people who buy uh, physical media, whether it's books or DVDs or anything, are very, very different from the people you interact with on the internet. Yeah, that's very Uh, true. Whether it's people's parents or whether it's you know younger readers who they don't know what they're looking for. They just want something that's like title or, you know, they're only allowed to buy this or they only have this much money or, you know, they want to know if this title's out. Like the people you interact with at a store level or on the other side of a convention table is a completely, amazingly sometimes different world um, mm-hmm. than the voices you hear online. Um, and so if you want to get into something like, uh, you know, even working in manga and you're not really sure, you know, what your your skill set is, like what maybe what you're totally into, Buying manga obviously helps because it gives you a better understanding of the books, um, what they are, what they look like, what they take, and also selling them, um, Yeah, learning what it's like to actually talk to and help and interact with people who are buying it because they're the ones supporting the industry. Yeah. And you have to understand them. They're, you can't talk to them the same way as people on the internet. Like, it, There's a difference.
1: Actually, that brings back to World's Greatest First Love again, which you know, it's got assault in it, like sexual assault, so I have to warn people. It's kind of got the standard boys love warning supply. But that is a really great representation of kind of what it's like to work in the publishing industry. And that's a big part of it, that there is like a retailer who's like a main character, who's a guy who's a, you know, he works in a giant bookstore in Tokyo. And the way he interacts with customers and stuff that he has like a special relationship with, and not, I don't mean special relationship in terms of sexual, but with the, the sales guy, like they, they talk about like, oh, let's do a display for this, you know, like, tell me what the people are saying in the stores. He does have have a special relationship with one of the editors, who is like, "I really like your books." You know, <laughs> it is the best series, anyway. But yeah, I, I, I agree that for about five years, when I wasn't doing that much stuff in the industry, I was working. Well, I'm a biochemist, on, you know, back then, so I was kind of working in the public health. But I didn't have a lot of time for industry stuff, so I would work retail at conventions. There was a couple retailers that I'd just be like, "Okay, I'll run your boys' love table or something," and I learned a lot those years, just like interacting directly with the customers who are paying money because the people on the internet yes a lot of them are paying money and a lot of them are promoting it to other people and like sometimes the sales can like really snowball online but there's also like now you have somebody who's coming up and saying I want this book here's some money give me that book that is like direct interaction with customer really valuable that's actually how I met Lisa in person for the first time do you remember you bought Gerard and Jack for me at a at anime North yes because um, yeah. you
3: were at the beguiling
1: I was at the time yeah and- I
3: I bought over 70 books of manga from The Beguiling Table that year. <laughs> I had, like, three suitcases. Uh That was one of my biggest... Actually, I think that to date was my biggest convention <laughs> haul. Like, I would not stop wow. at The Beguiling Table because they had a table just for boys' love, and they had, like, three tables of, like, $2 manga. Yeah. It was that just, was like, I can't be stopped.
1: And Rebecca used to um, help out at those... You know, Rebecca's also a Sparkle editor. We would you know, we would sort of help out at conventions and work at various areas. And the the stuff that you learn from interacting directly with fans, you know, even if it's just like a crazy weekend, You can learn a lot, especially if you do it, you know, more than once or, you know, even if it's like, oh, I'll just help out my buddy. He needs somebody at the table. You learn a lot. It, and that's a great suggestion, Lisa, that if somebody's interested in the industry, you know, maybe they're doing fan stuff on the side, maybe they want a job, go be a bookseller. And like, you know, even if you're working somewhere, Barnes and Noble, and you're like, oh, I'm really into manga, see if you can kind of get put on the manga section, you know, a little bit or, um, like that's, that's a really essential part of, the entire industry that um, gets overlooked a lot—the the retailer end—because we, out, you know, we outsource so much of it. We sell to, we give books to distributors, or we sell to retailers, and they're the ones who sell it. But that's a relationship you want to—you want to have a good relationship with retailers, and sometimes you want to see it from their perspective. So,
3: also working at conventions, I did a lot of years um, running panels and events, and eventually running like con chair at some cons. Mm-hmm. And it is an exhausting but very educational experience because, again, small companies, small groups, or nonprofits, which a lot of them are. You're Mm going to do a lot of different jobs, Mm -hmm. and you're going to work with professionals in the industry, and you're going to work with fans, and you're going to see a lot of different sides of fans, and deadlines. So it's it's another way that you can get like a kind of a stepping stone to the professional industry. If you
1: either volunteer or work at a library, and you help them buy more manga, like Lisa brought up very briefly, that you can request, you know, request manga at your library, and that's another way to kind of get more sales to support the industry if you really can't Afford comics, which is, you know, totally reasonable. You can go to the library and say, would you buy this? And if they get requests, they can order it. Um, Rebecca again worked for, you know, she has a lot of industry. She's not on this podcast, but she has worked in the industry from a lot of different angles and she used to work directly with librarians, helping them build manga collections. You know, it's, it, it can be very serious business that like, you know, selling. A lot of comics to librarians and actually we we have sparkler books and like Ontario libraries and stuff and like we, we sell to a lot of different people because we right now sparkler kind of is its own distributor which is not something that bigger companies it's, it's a giant pain in the butt so like getting an actual distributor to bookstores and, and comic stores can be a lot easier but you know as a small publisher we work directly with retailers and we are a retailer so all that stuff that we learned all those years came became valuable in this. And I think a lot of small publishers do have to do all things. So yeah, there's kind of a lot of ways to get a foot into this industry, honestly. I know what the doors are. There are definitely people who complain that it's really hard to get started. And it is. Um, I agree. I think sometimes, it's a, a you know, it can be one thing that you always sort of want to do on the side. You need a certain dedication. But, um, you know, it's obviously something you can't really predict. So it's hard to kind of build your life being around. And then I want to work in manga. But it is... A lot of us do it on the side, even professionally. Like, there are not that many people who are full-time mangaka, so... Or, sorry, full-time manga workers. Or, quite frankly, full-time manga. There are people who do comics on the side. Like, you can always do this stuff on the side of whatever your day job is, whatever your schooling is, poke around and see what there is. Because it's a lot of different jobs in the manga industry and fandom and related things, retails, libraries.
2: See, the other thing, too, is that it's difficult to predict what's going to lead to a job here. Yes. Um, and then what can kind of lead away from it as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I really lucked out in walking into my job at Tokyo Pop, but it was definitely aided, I mean, by the obvious fact that I was a Japanese major, like, that was very helpful although it's not required. Um, But I'd also done um, my internship at a publishing company in New York, which meant that I at least had like a passing familiarity of how the publishing industry worked, which was very applicable in kind of an indirect way to how Tokyo Pop worked as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I took that internship Thinking that I was going to go into mainstream publishing, like that was what I planned to do with that. Um, and the fact that it ended up being useful for what I really wanted to be doing was kind of coincidental. Mm-hmm. I've hired people who had a background in web marketing and then mm-hmm. ended up being a translator for me. I know people from the video game industry who've kind of come over to the manga side for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine has a background in, in like cookbook publishing and then ended up you know doing manga or just yeah or like kids book publishing and ended up in manga someone who did event planning was a a manga uh editor at tokyo pop for a while there's there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of get around to being in the industry and like no sort of experience is useless or unrelated because there's no you can't go to college to be a manga editor so you have to think of ways that like your skills and other things can then be applicable um And the answer is like, there's a lot of ways that you can do that. So I think just because there isn't a clear path doesn't mean there isn't a path. Um, or that whatever you're doing now isn't necessarily something that's going to translate into something that's useful for other people. So So it's kind of like, don't get discouraged about that. Don't feel like... Yeah, that, like, there's only one way, and if you miss out on it, then you're never going to be able to get there. Like, there's a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different opportunities. And, you know, one thing can lead to another in, in ways that are really surprising a lot of the time.
3: Yeah. And also, yeah. I'll point out after this particular conversation, uh like the podcast, is don't feel bad if you don't get your dream job in manga or something when you're, like, no matter what age you are. Right. Like, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Right, because like there's a, and it's for a lot of things: making comics, working in manga industry, any career thing. People like, if I don't do it by the time I'm 21, I failed. Yeah. Oh God! Like, no. no, right? Like a lot of people don't get, you know, don't get into things until like you, it doesn't matter how old you are, and there's no like finish line. There's no point that if you don't do it by yeah. blood, it's too late. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just want people to yeah. remember that because it's like you're always going to see people who get into industries or something really young. That is not the case for most people, and then I'm not, extremely unusual that
2: I got. The career that I did at the age that I was mm-hmm. like, that was really, really kind of a rare circumstance. There's like one or two other people who are still in the industry, like Hope Donovan, who also she was an intern at Tokyo Pop and then came back a year later and was full staff um, and now works at Viz. Like she also obviously was starting when she was in her early 20s. But like, that's pretty unusual. There's a lot of people who come to it in their late 20s or early 30s or late 30s, early 40s. Like there's a lot of ways to kind of get in there. And and any again, like anything that you're doing, you can turn that into experience that's useful. Like mm-hmm. if you're smart about how you kind of talk about your resume, not even like build your resume, but just talk about your resume and how you present yourself to, this is true with any job, to any opportunity. Like if you've been doing freelance art commissions on, you know, for affinity for years, like you're self-directed, self-motivated, creative talent, like <laughs> yeah. you can take any experience and make it relevant if you're, if you're creative about it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, um, actually two
1: examples that come to mind, E.K. Weaver and Fumi Yoshinaga were both two incredible uh-huh. creators who I don't think really started doing comics until they were like 30 or something, which by a lot of comic, uh, people's, uh, you know, they're like, wow, that's so late. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, you know, and sometimes you come with a certain maturity. So, uh, and I think also in the case of Lillian and I, we were really products of a time where the industry right. was in a, we happened right. again in when the industry was young and booming. So, um. Yeah. Like, it's not just at our age. We kind of saw an opportunity and jumped at it or the opportunity fell on us. Um So always kind of be open to that, that the industry is going to have its own ups and downs and stuff. And sometimes you might see a job or have an idea and you're like, well, I don't want to bother anyone. You know, it, it doesn't hurt sometimes to write a formal email to a company or to somebody you know and reach out there. You never really know. Like, don't expect an answer back, but you might get one. You know, I've gotten I did a lot of cold calls over the years and I got a couple jobs off that. Just don't be annoying about it. I mean, that's true in any profession, right? Like, just don't bug people. But um I think people underestimate how valuable it is to reach out in a professional way to people, even if it's just like, you know, I liked this book that I read. Oh, they haven't you know, you can write to this company and tell them I really enjoyed this series, you know, like for these following reasons or whatever. That kind of fan mail kind yeah, of goes a long I way. Think-
2: A certain amount of persistence is really, really useful, too. So, like, I hired someone to be a translator after meeting her at a convention. She basically walked up to me after a panel and was like, I like your stuff. I'd like to work from you. Here's my background. Here's my Mm -hmm. card. And I was like, okay, I'll follow up, like, after the convention. And, like, I didn't get back to her for a week or something. And she emailed me. And she's like, hey, how's it going? You know, I just wanted to remind you that I'm out there. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I was able to, like, forward her along to you know, our, our editorial manager or whatever, um, and kind of get her going. And now she's been in the industry for a while. So but like that's all it takes is like that, that initial handshake and like, oh, you're a human being who I can look in the eyes and be like, okay, yeah, Yeah. I know you. Um, I'm going to remember you now. And then that reminder of like, hey, that thing we talked about, how's it
1: going? Yeah. So, yeah. And that, in that respect, like, you can't ever plan around those things. Like, you can't say, well, I'm going to reach out to this number of companies and have a job, blah, blah, blah. So if you don't right. get bites, don't hold it against you because there, there are mil- it's like dating, right? Like getting a job. Right. There right. are a million <laughs> reasons why you may or may not be accepted for a job or considered for a job. You
2: have to be in the right place at the right time. It's a lot yes, of time. Yes, exactly.
1: So. But, yeah, like, you, you have to put yourself in enough places that if there happens to be a right place, right time, then – you know, then, then you're already there. So be self-assured, so, like, be polite.
2: I just believe myself to be a somewhat lucky person. Like, I feel like generally life has gone in my favor and and has been sort of circumstantially good for me. Um But there's also a sense that you make your own luck and that the reason why these opportunities open up is because you have these feelers out there. You've done that networking. You've, you know, established yourself in certain ways. You've got a certain skill set and you're open to opportunity and you're looking for it. Um, mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that, like, you're necessarily dying for it and you're like hungry and you're, you know, super aggressive about it all the time. But I think even just being like open to the possibility and knowing that you're out there as, as a resource, um, when the time comes is a really kind of invaluable way to position yourself in in the job industry. Yeah. So, okay. This uh, is, I think, make your own luck. Yeah. I (laughs) I need to go to work.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Or at least
2: uh, move my car for street cleaning.
3: That's what that alarm was. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah, we need we need to go actually work on bed manga.
1: We all do. <laughs> uh, the clip you heard at the beginning of this podcast was Toki Demons Audio, one of our dramatized, actually, it's our only dramatized audio book right now um, as part of our audio department. It was the first job, rather, it was the first project that we did, and it's getting a complete release soon, and you can listen to it all on our website, like all the other audio dramas. We're going to have a longer clip at the end for people to hear. And uh, I think we're all going to sign off. Um, I'll have everybody say goodbye if there's one last note they want to give.
2: Thanks for listening, guys.
3: Yay, manga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening to us all the way through. Um, I know we talked about the whole scanlation piracy thing a lot, but that is a really heated topic now, as it always is. Mm-hmm. Um, all we can really do is emphasize that, you know, if you want to be a part of the industry or support the industry, you have to actually engage with the industry as it exists, buy the books, support the authors, the creators, you know, do your own thing and everyone will get what they want.
1: Yeah, we all uh, we wouldn't still be in the manga industry. We wouldn't have started our own publishing house if we didn't love it here. Um, even though it's it's difficult in a lot of ways. Like clearly, we have not given up on manga despite all the ups and downs that we talk about. We are not completely bitter <laughs> to comics, even though sometimes you know you can't just a little bit bitter. Yeah, I mean, there's certain topics. I feel like I've are always touched. been a
2: little bit bitter, so it's not like the manga industry's changed that at all.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think brought out a.
2: Of- myself.
1: <laughs> when it's your day job, you, you know, there's always going to be like, oh, that guy at work. Well, sometimes that guy at work is an internet fan chat community. <laughs> we'll come back and do another one of these if people want. There's a great series of articles on The Society for Antisocial Geniuses. I think that's the name of the blog. Mm-hmm. Both Lillian and yep. I and a lot of other freelancers in the industry and, you know, people who had been full-time editors did a series about working in the manga industry that explained a lot of this stuff as well. So, there are resources out there if you want to look up things about localization or rewriting or um editing or um, typesetting all the different jobs in the, the manga industry and uh yeah thanks very much for listening we'll talk to you guys next month about some other topic Bye.
0: <laughs> nick had finished packing his gear and now helped sachi shrug into a vest Once it was on, Nick pulled the vest open and gestured to each item strapped inside.
3: That's pepper spray. Isa already has her own. That's a taser. I'll show you how to use it in the car, in case you get in a bind. This keychain lets off an alarm that's loud as hell.
0: Realization dawned on Isa. Sachi's eyes caught her own. He smiled weakly. I'll feel better if I come, Isa. It's not right to let you do this alone. Worry dropped Isa's stomach like an anchor. Now she was nervous, and she was a little surprised at how badly. I- I'm not alone, she said. I'll have Nick, and... Does Sachi really have to come?
3: Zaid and I are gonna be busy. Sachi can watch over you while your attention's with Kiyoshi.
0: He grabbed a large sheath and shoved it into Sachi's hands. He can handle it. Sachi unsheathed his weapon a few centimeters. A long, thick hunting knife with serrated edges caught the light. He blinked a few times, then quickly sheathed it again. Nick took the weapon from Sachi's hands and crammed it into the vest. He slapped Sachi on the back so hard that Sachi's glasses were knocked askew.
3: Ready to be a man?
0: Sachi laughed nervously. He pushed the frames back up his nose. Isis squeezed shut her eyes. For the first time, she was relieved to switch her attention anywhere but the church.